I'm so glad you guys are here this morning. Um, if I could just jump off the Memorial Day message. Um, man, it's important to remember how many of you understand the importance and the principle of remembering growing up, that when your mom told you no, it was important for you to remember. Amen? Because when you didn't remember, she helped you remember. Was there anybody here whose mom helped you in a more motivational way to remember things? And in case you forgot, she reconnected your areas of life, you know? Thank God she, she did. I love history because when I, as I uh, read through history, I see all the lessons that history has tried to teach me. And, and try to show me, here's some things that we ought to do again. Here's some things that are important we ought to fight for. And here's some things that you should never go back to ever again. And so as I read through history, I, I love it because they paid a price that I don't have to. So long as I pay attention. So long as I don't repeat their mistakes. And so long as I, I, as I re-embrace their principles. And so I want to talk about this morning the importance of our faith, our family, and how that has to impact our flag. But let me start in history first. Samuel Taylor um, Coleridge, he's a philosopher of the 1700s, he said this, if men could learn from history what lessons it might teach us, but passion and party blind our eyes, and the light which experience given is a lantern on the stern which shines only on the waves behind us. That's very poetic, but man, at the same time, too, it's very profound. That a lot of times we don't learn our lessons until we're looking back over our shoulder and say, oh, I wish I hadn't have done that. Woodrow Wilson, the 28th president, said this, a nation which does not remember what it was yesterday does not know what it is today, nor what it is trying to do. America's legacy is a rich legacy, but rich but lost. And Theodore Roosevelt, which was the 26th president, said, no abounding of material prosperity shall avail us if our spiritual senses a trophy or diminish or degrade. The foes of our own household will surely prevail against us unless there be in our people an inner life which finds its outer expression in a morality like that preached by the seers and the prophets of God. So true. And so important it is for us to pay attention to history because mankind has a problem with paying attention to history. Mankind is a stubborn creature, <laughs> a prideful one, and where we believe somehow that unlike all of history, mankind always believes that we will not be like those who ventured before us. We are unique. We, we proclaim, we beat our chest, and we say, we're different. We'll, we'll do something new, is, is what we say, generation after generation. But why Solomon, the preacher, would say to us this morning in Ecclesiastes, he would say, history merely repeats itself. It has all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. See, parents, you need to phrase that when you talk to your kids and they tell you, well, mom, it's not like this in your day. Dad, it's not like you, this in your day. You say, no, listen to me, nothing is truly new under the sun. Sometimes people say, here is something new. But actually, it is old because nothing is ever truly new. We don't remember what happened in the past. And in future generations, no one will remember what we are doing now. And that is so true for us. But still yet, somehow Solomon understood that. 
there in the 1000 BC era. And so we're still finding that principle to ring true over and over again. And it's true when we look at America and we see America has virtues and vices. And, and if, we don't, if we're not cautious, what we find is this, is that virtue um, is really first from God. First, first Peter 2.9 talks about that, how our virtue is from God. But then our virtue is not just from God, it's for God. That we might proclaim the excellencies of the virtue of God. And so as a, as a nation, our issue is simply this, is that we've lost virtue because we've lost relationship with the Lord. We've not walked in step like we need to or supposed to. And what happens is, is when you lose virtue, then vice creeps in. That the, the pleasures of this world creeps in. And so once a nation's vices overtake their virtues, um, all they, they once value is at risk of loss. And this is true of America for us. While we I have certain precious values uh, with freedom and personal liberty and the pursuit of happiness, equality, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of the press, all those virtues that we need to maintain and value, we, we find ourselves losing those things for liberty that is not controlled by virtue becomes a license to licentiousness or that's unprincipled living or promiscuous promiscuity. And I think right now it's very clear about the promiscuity of America's nation. We're falling into that licentiousness because we have not embraced the virtue that our Father in Heaven has given us. And once a nation uh, reaches a place where the majority is concerned about its pleasures more than its freedom, does that feel familiar to you? I don't mind preaching to myself. It's okay. I, I see these things very clearly. But I know that, that eventually what happens is those freedoms are short-lived. It's not just in America. America is just not hinting at that. All of history tells us these things. This is not a new thing for us. And for America, if we're going to find the future uh, in peace and security of this great nation, it's not going to be based on location, which is great. Location, 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 but not just its location, not just its military, not economy, not affluence, not resources, rather the peace and security of our nation, this great nation that God has blessed us with, rests completely upon faith and faithfulness to God. Can I say that again? It, it, it rests completely upon the faith and the faithfulness to God. There are no other solutions for our country. None. Pray with me. Lord, this morning, Lord, as a body and as a congregation, Father, we freely attest to you knowing, God, that there's nothing we can come up with. There's no plan. There's no strategy, God. There's nothing that is in man's toolbox to be able to fix the issues that we see, not only just in our country, Lord. Sometimes we become so narrow minded and narrow-sighted that we think that all the problems that exist in the world are those that exist within our country or our city or our state. But God, there is lawlessness and licentiousness, God, rampant throughout the all, all the earth. Father, we know that the same solution for our problems here in ho at home and in our country are the same solutions, Father, for the whole world. We pray, God, you would teach us this morning, challenge us, encourage us, God, and give us instruction, Father, to how to walk out each and every day in a way, Father, that honors you and that invites you in the midst of our problems. 
This is what we've done, Father, when we go through the problems of our own personal lives. The moment we invite you in is the moment, God, reconciliation and resolution happens. And so we ask that you would use us again for our country. In Jesus' name, amen. Ancient Israel would plead with us today and say, pay attention to history. For if we are the people of God, it would be important for us to pay attention to the people of God, right? And so as we look through ancient Israel, here's what we see is during the time and the reign of King Jeroboam II, so that's way on down the line of the northern kings, uh, as, as King Jeroboam II came into power, he reigned for 41 years uh, in Israel. And during his time, he established military power. He re-expanded the, the, um, the borders uh, once again. And he increased the wealth and the influence of Israel. And he created political stability. In fact, it was said that they had not experienced peace and prosperity since the days of Solomon, like they did during King Jeroboam's days. So, so think about the fact if you're in during ancient Israel's days, and things are great. Things are bliss, right? No attacks on the outside. Assyria's busy doing their other things, and so they're just living in this life of bliss. Things are growing. They're producing things. The borders have been reestablished. All those things are great, except there's one problem. You guys know that, that um, when we get into a place of um, blessings, I guess is a good word to spiritualize that, stuff, when we prosper, when there's peace, somehow we forget our need for the Lord. Isn't it true? Because we're not needy anymore. You're not needy anymore. And so all of this physical growth and productivity caused Israel to sin after the former Jeroboam, King Jeroboam. And this is what the Lord said of him. He said, he said this is how you're sinning. You're sinning just like King Jeroboam. And he said to Jeroboam, you made yourself other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger and have cast me behind your back. In other words, you don't need me anymore, and now you're doing what you want to do, as if you were your own God. And so during the height of peace and prosperity, the Lord tells Israel through his prophet Hosea, he says this. He says, he destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are your rulers, those of whom you said, give me a king and princess? I gave you a king in my anger. I took him away in my wrath. And the reason why uh, God is saying those things is because they realized that they didn't, they didn't acknowledge him anymore. And so Israel failed to receive the rebuke that God made during peace and prosperity. Did you, I want you to understand that. The Lord is rebuking them when persecution is coming but not here. Because why? Because the Lord is gracious and merciful. Are you, have you ever been rebuked in a place where you weren't going through a hardship just yet, but you responded? I hope you responded to the Lord because he is trying to get you from not going through the persecution, not going through hardship, because he's got a heart of a father. He doesn't want you to go through that stuff. You know, you've been there. Your kids are doing something wrong. And you know, before I lay the law down and other things, too. I want you to hear my heart as a father, to respond, to hear my rebuke. But they failed to do that. And because they failed to do that, he speaks later on through the prophet Jeremiah and says this, as they're being exiled by Babylon, have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God? 
when he led you in the way. And now what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? This is, this is um, uh, he's building alliances here. Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Let me just kind of give you some Bible information here. Jesus, I'm sorry, Jesus, the Lord took Israel out of Egypt and Egypt was known by its waters, its many waters. He brought them into an Israel, to the place of uh, the promised land where there's mountains, where the only way they can live and survive is when the rain falls. Now, back in Egypt, all they had to do was move the lever, and they had water. But over here in the promised land, they had to depend on the Lord. And so now he's saying, because you're not waiting on my rain, you've made alliances with these other uh, countries to drink the waters of Euphrates, and your evil will chastise you, and your apostasy will reprove you. So know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake your Lord God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. And so the Lord is saying, you don't even fear me anymore because you don't need me. You don't see the potential threat, and you don't, you don't honor me. And so it's important for us, it's imperative for us that as America, we need to know that unless we recognize that it is God who saves and God who keeps us and God who blesses us, then we act out of, rev- out of a lack of reverence for the Lord. Until we understand those things, that it is he who saves, it is he who keeps, and it is he who blesses. If we don't do those things, then we act as if we got it all under control. And we know we don't have it under control because the Lord tells us in Psalms 127, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain, unless the Lord watches over the city, and I would just even extend that and say over the country, unless the Lord watches over the country, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's not up to us. It has never been up to us. The only responsibility that we have is to make sure that we remind him it's entirely upon him. It is his job to bless. It is his job to save. It is his job to keep us. And so as we look at this, we have to ask ourselves, where is our role in fulfilling what God has called us to do? Honestly, if God wanted to overthrow the American government, uh, in order to keep its integrity and its reputation from, uh, of, as being a, a God-fearing nation, then why would he allow Israel's kingdom to fall uh, to Roman dictatorship? Why, why would the Lord honor us more than them? Does God care more about America's country than Israel's kingdom? That'd be a hard, that'd be a hard yes to say. I would probably say no. You, you might throw some apples at me, but I just feel like no. I don't think that he does. And let me just remind you what he said concerning Israel's kingdom. John 18, 36 said this, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. But my kingdom is not of this world. So when I read that, I want you just to take that in for a second. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants, they would have been fighting. Do you feel like the Lord's servants lose? (laughs) Let me just remind you that the Lord's servant, one servant, overthrew the Assyrian army in one night and killed 185,000 people. If the Lord was in the conquest, he would have no need for us whatsoever at all. And so as I read through this scripture, I asked myself this question. I'm going to give you three questions today for you to ask yourself as well. And the first one is this. Am I fighting for a kingdom that Jesus wouldn't fight for? Am I fighting for a kingdom Jesus wouldn't fight for? 
Because if Jesus desired that kingdom, if he wanted to conquest the kingdom that we feel like we're fighting for, then you and I would not be fighting right now. Because he has all that he needs to overcome the enemy. So the church needs to rediscover what is our role in the public forum. What do we need to do? What do we need to say? How do we need to act? Well, I'm glad you asked. Thank you for asking this morning. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And what does the Lord ask us to do? What is the role of the church? How are we supposed to conduct ourselves? How are we supposed to act? It says in Matthew 5, 13, you are the what? Salt. Y'all wake this morning? You are the what? Salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. In fact, the word trampled doesn't really do it justice there. The word is katapetero, which means this. It means to be ran over or subjugated or, or to be moved past as if you were insignificant. You are just a speed bump. That's who you're supposed to be. But, but Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. Now, we know that means preservation. But the, the fun thing is simply this, is that they didn't have science back in Jesus' day. That wasn't until later on, until people got tired of just believing in their faith. They wanted something to prove that. And so Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. But I know that Jesus knows all things. And so when Jesus says that, he, that we are the salt of the earth, he is saying specifically, there are two scientific processes that you need to know about, church. He says, you need to know that there is a desiccation and that there is uh, enzyme inhibition. How many of y'all know what those things are? Okay, good. I'm teaching to the class this morning. Desiccation simply is this. For things to spoil and become moldy, right, and to, and to, uh, um, uh, to degenerate, then there has to be an environment for bacteria and viruses to break that down. But when there is desiccation, the water is not there, the environment is not there, and so things that are bad or things that are, are ill or bacteria and viruses, they can't reproduce. Here's what I hear Jesus saying. If you're really the salt, then you'll change the environment that even when sin wants to reproduce, it cannot because it has no environment to thrive in. I'm asking this morning, are you the salt of the earth? When you're at the watering hole at work and they say some things that you ain't supposed to be listening to, nor should you repeat, I'm asking you, are you adding to the environment to reproduce a sinful heart? Or are you creating an environment where you hear gossip and it just falls flat? But not just desiccation, but also enzyme inhibition which simply disrupts the chemical reaction that causes changes to break down and spoil. So there are enzymes in things that cause it to radically break down and spoil. But salt disrupts the chemical reaction. What I hear the Lord say to me this morning is that, Scott, if you're salt, you're going to disrupt the natural reactions of the flesh when you're tempted, when you're tried. You know how it is. That's the reason why the Lord says, if they slap you on this cheek, then do what? Disrupt the enzyme on this side of the cheek. Because you guys know if y'all get slapped, the other side is going to be ready to do the slapping. You guys are pious people. I know better than that. Y'all, here's my cheek. Here's my cheek. Okay, y'all get the point. Y'all get the point. So it's not just preservation, but it's also illumination. Matthew 5, 14 says this. 
You are the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So we have preservation, we have illumination, and this illumination speaks to people about who God is. It says, I'm going to reveal the reason I, I worship or I serve God in my response. And can I tell you the best way for people to see us is one through good works. If you read down through there, it talks about that, but also in hardships. When you go through stuff and your friends see you go through those things and everybody else should have went and done like everybody else should have went and done, but you were different. In that moment, you were the light. You revealed something. It's your nature and your character is not like the other things of this world that we are different. We don't act as those who walk in darkness. We don't act like those who stumble. We are the light, and we carry ourselves with the light. You know what Jesus said? He says, he did not say that you are the garlic. That's what he did not say. Because you know what garlic does? Dominates. It dominates everything, right? You put garlic in anything, what are you going to taste? It ain't salt. You're going to taste some garlic. And But you know who wanted the garlic, the domination? The Pharisees. They didn't want to be salt and light. They wanted to dominate. They wanted, they wanted to establish their agenda. And the Pharisees had this campaign objective to dominate. Unlike the objectives of the Pharisees, the church was never called, listen to me, to replace, overthrow, or attack the government. Can I just stop and say that again? The church was never called. And if I'm wrong, please send me an email, scottbrandonharrisonfaith.org. Show me in Scripture. But I'm pretty sure I've read through this where I've never seen the church to be called to replace, overthrow, or attack the government. The reason why is because the government is God's idea. He set that up. He designed it. There was a Republican government long before there ever was a monarchy. So the Lord knows what, what its purpose is. And we actually read that in Romans chapter 13 as a reason for the government. But the Pharisees were looking for a political overthrow of the Romans. They were looking for a political savior. They wanted to replace Romanism with Judaism so they could be in charge, right? It wasn't about the right thing. It was about who was on the throne. And so here is where they're wrong again. And Jesus is like, I'm not coming for those things. They wanted a king who could give them a kingdom that they could rule and be in charge and overthrow. And that goes back to Jeroboam too, Jeroboam II. He did the same thing. They're, they're thinking, man, if we can be in charge like Jeroboam was, like Solomon was, then we can have our blessings all over again. I know I'm talking about ancient history, but I'm still talking about America this morning. Because somehow we're under the illusion that if everything is peaceful and everything is prosperous, that we don't need certain things in our life. And to be honest, you guys know how it works in America. The moment we go through hardship and trial, all of a sudden the church is on fire. All of a sudden Jesus is in everybody else's name. But the moment we start living comfortably, comfortably, we forget about the Christ that gave us that comfort. And the reason why we do that is because we are no different than all of mankind in history. But the Lord challenges us this morning to not repeat to not do and fall into judgment. Hosea 8.4 says, They made kings, but not through me, Jesus, the Lord says. They set up princesses, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. Hosea 10.1 says, Israel is a, a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased. Circle this. 
The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. That's a principle. At his, and his country improved, he improved his pillars. So as they prospered, there's always this tendency to neglect God. It's the reason why Jesus said, what's, what's the hardest person to go to heaven? It's a rich man. Why? Because he has everything he needs. It's not impossible, obviously, we know that. But it's difficult when all of our needs are met to really turn to Jesus like he's our only need. And this is what we see not in our personal lives, but also in, in, um, in the world, in our country as well. And so Israel's story and prosperity is really just the story of mankind as a whole. We, we, we get what we ask for, and then we forget the God who granted it. Hosea 10.3 says this, For now will they say, We have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And the king, what could he do for us? Here's what I want you to see. They had no king because they had no political problems. There was no need for God's authority and no authority, period. We didn't fear the Lord because we had no spiritual concerns. We had peace and prosperity, which leads man to believe that he has no need for God. But having no need for God then creates a spiritual problem. Spiritual problems create political challenges, and the response of mankind in the flesh is to seek political solutions for spiritual problems, and that's what the Pharisees did. Let's seek political solutions for spiritual problems, and this is where we are today in the wonderful, blessed country that we lived in, that we have spiritual problems, but we are looking for political solutions. If we just get the right guy in, if we just get the right reforms, we just get the right laws passed. No, those things will never work because they're, they're from our wisdom. They're from our understanding. And they'll never solve the condition of the heart. Laws will never make man righteous. Don't we know that, right? We talked about that last year in Ten Commandments. Never will it make us righteous. But we feel like somehow that it will. And so we find ourselves like the Pharisees seeking political solutions to, to spiritual problems. But notice how Jesus approached it. Did you know that Jesus never came to run for office? Did y'all know that? He never came to run the country. He never came to win the popular vote. That is, he didn't come to be accepted by the masses. He didn't try to become a, a member of this party or that party because he didn't come to side with man. And he didn't even come to publish his complaints or his criticisms against the government. In fact, when Jesus was pressed on, on politics, here's what he said concerning politics. He said, render to Caesar what is Caesar. If it's his image on it, then give it to him. But render to God what is God. Since you're made in his image, then give God his stuff, give Caesar his stuff. And that was the only thing that he addressed concerning politics. He never became political in teaching, uh, he, never during his parables or even the events that he attended. He avoided dealing with corruption of the government, which I would feel like, Jesus, you should do this. We've got some corruption going on here. Deal with this stuff. He didn't come to clean the government up, although it was apparent that it needed to. He didn't do those things because he never came to give political solutions to, to spiritual problems. But you know who did want those things? Judas. Judas wanted the things that, if we're honest, we want. Judas wanted those things. Judas didn't hate Jesus. He was frustrated that Jesus would not deal 
with the constant pressures and the immediate problems that he was going through. You see, Judas wanted to overcome the enemy or overcome the kingdom through power and superiority. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not how I do things. I've not, overcome, I've not come to overcome man's stuff but man's heart. I've come through submission and humility. And so let me ask you this morning, my second question is this. Do I desire change through superiority and power or through submission and humility? When I look at the world today, do I long to change my government, my country, my party, my city? Do I, do I long to change those things through power and superiority or through submission and humility? I'll be honest with you. I would love for the church to stand back up and say, you know what? We're going to rebuke sinners. We're going to rebuke those dumb flags. We're going to rebuke agendas and parades and preferences and privileges and prerogatives and overt passions. We're going to rebuke those things. But you know, those things won't matter. We know that because you know how it is. Whatever you do in your own strength, you have to keep in your own strength. I need the Lord to do what I cannot do because I cannot keep what the Lord does. And the Lord more than likely will not keep what I do because it's probably not his will. Otherwise, he would do it on behalf of me. But America, much like Rome, needs to be overthrown, listen to me, not in the streets, not in the courts, not in the voting booth, not in the White House, not in the educational system, not in the free market, but in the home. We need to be overthrown in the home. Because when you have the home, you have all of the essence of life. Everything flows from the home. Everything flows from the home. Acts 5.42 says this, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. They didn't stop that. That was the goal. That was the agenda. That was the narrative. They know there was other things going on. There were other political agendas happening. But the apostles, the apostles, the ones who were sent by God, did what? They preached and they taught Christ is Jesus in the home and in the church. The hope of Pharisees faded. Rome fell, Jerusalem was destroyed, the Jews were scattered over all the earth. But can I tell you, the church grew in strength. Why? Because Christ was Jesus in the home. There are no solutions to our country, our culture, or our city unless those solutions are spiritual ones. God has three ordinations for us that we live in, the context of our life that we live in. The first thing he has ordained, that God has ordained the family. It is the principal building block of faith, values, morality, integrity, responsibility, character. All those things come from the home. And if they don't come from the home, they're not going to be taught in the world. They have to start at home. And then God has ordained the church. He's ordained the church to be a spiritual representative for God to the world, to love their enemies under friendship, to model godly virtues in heart and soul, to declare truth, to teach boundaries, to warn against judgment, to minister to the unfortunate, to feed the hungry, 
clothe the naked, heal the hurting, help the weak, share the gospel, reach the lost, and safeguard the soul of the nation. That's the church. But can I tell you, the church is only as, fa- is only as healthy as the families that make it up. It just won't change. We're only healthy as a family as we are healthy in our families. And if we don't address this root, if we don't address these issues that in our life, then we miss the whole thing. God has also ordained the government to correct injustice, punish evil men, protect its citizens from foreign aggression, and maintain civil order. But the government cannot do what God intended mom and dad to do. Nor can the home abdicate or release its responsibilities to the government or the church. Those things exist in the home for the home. And if our nation is to be strong, it'll be strong because it has strong families, that have strong churches, that have strong people of virtue, strong leaders, godly parents, godly leaders that are raising godly kids. Because why? It's the principle of the overflow, guys. It's the principle of the overflow. You cannot change that. That's why we call it a principle. (laughs) We can't alter it. But we can't abide by it. And so long as we abide by the principle of his word and his plan, there is blessings always in the principle of God. So hear me today. If we want to solve political problems in the White House, we must first solve the spiritual ones in our house. So here's the last question. Do I want to see change in my house or just the White House? Because that house will never change until this one changes first. And I can't complain about that one until I've addressed this one. Because that's just a physical thing. But this is a spiritual one. And so I'm just challenging us today. Your your home may be broken. Your family may be dysfunctional. And it needs to be addressed. Or maybe there's some things in your life, you guys, I know the Lord's speaking to you and saying, I need you to be this type of father. I need you to be this type of mother. And you've not done it because it's not wrong, but it is better. It's not just our job to fix our families, but it's also our job to fortify our families because the enemy is coming for your family. So this morning, here's how I want to end. I'm going to do something uncomfortable. Are you guys okay with that? Maybe, Pastor Scott, staying with me this morning. I honestly, just in my heart, I believe this. If we really, if we really want to see change, you really want to believe change, not for just your family, but for your family and vice versa, then what we need to do is be family here. We got to be family here. No one wants to bring a healthy family into an unhealthy family. Have you ever been into an unhealthy household? Have you ever brought your mannered kids into a household who had unmannered kids? No? Okay, just me. We want families to know when they walk into this family that they're family too. And so this morning, here's what I want to do. I want us to pray for each other, pray for our families, pray for the family as a body of Christ, and then pray for our nation. But I'm going to ask you to grab the hand next to you, even if that means extending across the aisle. 
Let's, let's connect together. Be one. If you're not into holding hands, just link shields. Follow me. But make sure you're, you're, you're unifying with somebody today. And pray with me this morning. Father in heaven, Lord, we surrender ourselves to you. We submit ourselves to you, God. We know there's nothing that we can do. We don't have it. We don't have it, Lord. And so, Father, I pray for my family and I pray for these families. Lord, make us whole. God, you see the spiritual stuff in our lives and in our homes and the difficulties. And I'm inviting you to come and to deal with these things, Lord. Because we know we're not the answer. We know we don't have the solution. So, God, would you come? Would you come and bring your peace, bring your order, God, bring, bring your prosperity, and reign in the kingdoms of men's hearts first. Reign in our homes, in our bedrooms, in our living rooms, God, I pray. Establish your presence there. Establish your grace there, your love there. God, protect us, Lord, in our homes. And Father, I pray we would bring that heart and that mentality and that love we have for each other in our house, that we'd bring that, God, to this house. And that this house, Lord, looks like the home we leave. So that way, those, God, who are struggling in the world, who don't know what a family is like, they don't know what a house is supposed to be like, that they might be brought into your house and be introduced into your family. Father, make our church salt. Father, make our church light. That the world might see, that the city might see, that the culture might see that we represent you and that we don't offer any solutions apart from you, that we depend on you to keep us, bless us, and save us. So we freely admit that today. We ask that you would do it in a way that would glorify your son the most possible way. We want everyone to know that our lives and our families and our church only cares about the glory of Jesus' name. So use us to accomplish that. We thank you, Lord, for your blessings. Go with us today. Bless our food, Father, as we go. Bless our time of fellowship as we go. And we thank you for all the blessings that we do have. We thank you for those blessings. We ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. Thank you, God.